I invite you to take your Bible. I'm going to turn to John chapter 1. Before we uh, read our text, before I get started here, let me just lead us in a prayer. We'll ask for the Lord's help in this time. Father, we've come here to adore your Son, our Savior Jesus, Christ the Lord. And we do that by opening this book that you have given to us, this your word. It is living, it is active, it is sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces to the very core of our beings, dividing soul, spirit, joints, marrow. And it discerns the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And God, we want you to do that work through your word this morning. Inasmuch as this book points us to your son, Father, we want to give it our full attention, knowing that you have breathed it out, knowing that as we attend to this with our minds and with our hearts, that you will bring about change in us. It is food that we need for our souls. It is our daily bread. So God, as the proclaimer of this truth, I pray that you'll help me, strengthen me, guide me, control my words and thoughts. And for all of us, Father, would you give us attentiveness in mind and a willingness of heart to hear from you. And we pray that, indeed, Christ, your Son, our Savior, would be exalted in this time. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Oh, thanks, Jim. Appreciate that. Thank you. That's that's helpful. Oh, uh, back in uh, b- before I was in vocational ministry, uh, I was working in uh, in a job, and my my job was trying to get medium sized corporations to part with their money, so that and in buying the computer technology that I was uh, we were selling. I was at that time immersed in this kind of corporate culture and so I, I read books and went to seminars that taught us how to be successful and how to understand that, that corporate environment. And I, I remember so, so vividly that there was much conversation around uh, companies and their mission statements and in fact even that discussion uh, kind of went to the personal life, you know, as a, you need a personal kind of mission statement if you want to be successful. I was just curious about some of the ones that are, that are out there today with more up-to-date companies. And I read, and I, and, and I guess as I, as I even read these things, I, I'm a little bit cynical in how I hear them. The Tesla's uh, mission statement, to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. Well, I'm thinking most customers are thinking, well, I just like to plug it in in the garage and go. <laughs> but that's me. JetBlue, here's their mission statement, to inspire humanity both in the air and on the ground. Now, if you're able to do a kind of an interview when somebody got off the plane. I don't know how many people would say that they were inspired (laughs) from the recent experience in the air. I think think in practical senses, you know, JetBlue and the other airlines are just finding a way not to make people feel like sardines packed in a can, right? (laughs) Or cows being moved through the turnstiles, mooing along as we dutifully take our seats. Or Nike, to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Well, I'm sure there are some people in the world who do not feel inspired by their innovation. Like I said, I'm I'm a little cynical. How these corporations carry out their mission statements 
kind of tells me that, you know, I wish they'd just be honest. We're just trying to make some money for us and our shareholders. Really, that's because if you take that part out of it, they're not doing any innovation. They're not doing any inspiring. They're not doing anything at all. Like I said, I'm a little cynical. At the heart of what they're doing is trying to make money. That's clear. Now, the last two weeks, we've been given our focus to the Christmas story, the, the true one. Uh, the fact of the incarnation of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took upon himself a human body. We've been uh, focusing in particular on one Bible text for this mini Advent series. It's been John 1.14. I will read it for us. And it simply states, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Two weeks ago, we focused on the fact that Jesus is truly man. Last week, our focus was that Jesus is truly God. And today, I want us to think about how, how Jesus fulfills his mission in the world. How he fulfills that mission. Our Bible text, Jesus, the word here is described as full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What does it mean to be full? Full of grace and truth. Now, I, I know the way we sometimes use the word. Um, there might, we be thinking like there's an empty vessel and it is something from outside put into it to be filled. You know, so if you're driving your car, the gas tank is empty, you need to fill it up. So when you've finished at the pump, your gas tank is full. Or maybe you're hungry and you, you eat so that you feel full. As we think about Jesus being full of grace and truth, we have to think of it not in the idea of some empty vessel being filled up by something external, but, but rather he was always full. I think a good substitute for the word full might be perfect, complete. Jesus was perfect or complete in grace and truth. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus' mission? What does being perfect in grace and truth have to do with Jesus' mission? Well, Jesus made the statement, and I'm going to draw from Luke 19, uh, kind of a personal mission statement. Luke 19, 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that that, that mission would not, it could not be accomplished apart from the fact that Jesus was, Jesus is perfect in grace and truth. His mission to save involved some essential facts that demand belief, those facts that lost people need to believe to be saved. And apart from grace, those truths would not be believed. They would not be understood. They would not be heard. They would not be applied. So bottom line here is that Jesus' saving mission was a twofold mission of truth and grace. And those are my simple headings for this message this morning. So first, a mission of truth. A mission of truth. Now contrary to the more recent ways of talking about it, truth Truth, we must understand, is not a perspective. It's not an experience. And it's not an opinion because, that you hold because it's 
personally meaningful, okay? I think we get that. Truth is objective reality. Truth is objective. It's as simple as the difference between zero and one. Yes and no. Is, is not, is not. It's objective reality. And truth matters. Of course, we get this, right? We, we live every day depending on truth. Life and death, in fact, depends on, on truth. The traffic light is either red or green. And, and the meaning of that must be understood, right? For those approaching the intersection, the meaning of that must be understood because not understanding it could be the difference between a serious injury or even death and life. Jesus' saving mission was a mission of truth. Knowing and believing the truth is the difference between eternal life and condemnation. This is so, so very vital. Jesus, while facing his own imminent death, now he was before Pilate, who's being questioned. He said this to him, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came to bear witness about the truth. And if you want to be in the truth, you hear the voice of Jesus. So that truth that people needed to understand, that truth that people needed to be saved is the truth about God. John, John in his gospel uh, says this, and this is just shortly after, after the text that is our main text. John says this, no one has ever seen God. The only God, now here he's referring to the word of God, Christ, Jesus, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, of course, God could be known and was known before Jesus was born. We don't want to suggest that until Jesus came along, God could not be known. God revealed himself prior to Jesus through his word, and he spoke that word through prophets. And of course, we have the record of that in our Old Testament, right? That's a whole collection of the word of God spoken through prophets. But when the word became flesh, that revelation no longer needed to be mediated by a prophet. It was now embodied in the Son of God, the word of God who became flesh. That's what Hebrews, at the beginning of Hebrews, it says. It provides this comparison, right? Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, referring to Jesus. So as the exact imprint of the nature of God, whatever, whatever needed to be understood and believed about God, Jesus himself revealed it in his person. And that ensured perfect continuity Think about this. Jesus revealing in his person whatever needed to be understood, the very nature of God, bearing that in himself, whatever needed to be understood and believed, he in his body provided that perfect continuity between what had been previously written, our Old Testaments, and what he did. There was no conflict between the word spoken and the word lived out through Jesus, the Son of God. 
And therefore, the word of God, the son of God, had to become flesh and had to dwell among us. So in this one man, Jesus, the son of God, possessing two natures, yet one person, this, this God-man, spoke with absolute authority, the very authority of God himself. And we can't set that aside. You see, people in the world today, they look at Jesus, historians and, and, and the popular conversation about Jesus, see Jesus as something separate from almighty, all-powerful God. Good man, nice guy, compassionate. But they fail to see the connection between him and his very person and the very authority of almighty God. We recognize that as believers in Jesus. While the written word of God, our Old Testament, demanded obedience, the written word of God also condemned those who failed to keep it. And that means everyone. So where the law comes in, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not, or maybe you haven't done those things. You shall not covet. When we're confronted with the word of God, it condemns us, doesn't it? We know this. I mean, ever since Adam's disobedience, all humans, without exception, have been plagued by this stain of sin that brings this consequence, death, this separation from God. And like I said, we know this from experience and in engaging with the commandments of the word of God. While we may be able to externally keep no adultery, don't kill, don't steal, each of us look within and we see in our hearts the darkness that is there and the things that we struggle with, the things that we're tempted to do, the things that we imagine. We're condemned by it. But the word who became flesh he accomplished in his body what we could not do. He triumphed over sin and death. Jesus said this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Understand this. Jesus says, I'm not setting aside, we'll call it the Old Testament. I'm not setting aside the scriptures. I didn't come to abolish them. No, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them like i said jesus didn't do away with the law he could not he wasn't saying it didn't matter he wasn't saying well don't worry about it i know the commandments say this yeah just we'll set that aside no he never said that he didn't come to abolish it the law he couldn't abolish it right because the law is that perfect reflection of his own character god's character he couldn't set it aside or he'd be denying himself right no jesus didn't do away with the law but what he did was he fulfilled it. Now, there's a whole lot that could be said about how he fulfilled it. He fulfilled the prophetic word about him, but he fulfilled the law. Jesus fulfilled the law by perfectly obeying it. What he did in his own body is he fulfilled the law's righteous demands. And he didn't just do that for himself. He did that for us. So when Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the truth, he both spoke it and embodied it. Now, going back to the birth narrative, when the angel told Joseph that the woman to whom he was betrothed, Mary, when he was told that she would conceive, 
even though she was a virgin. That announcement of this miraculous conception included the name Jesus. And we're told there why he is named Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. This one to be born will save his people from their sins. I think tradition has it that Joseph never witnessed what happened at the cross. And I, and I don't know if he could have fully imagined how this would have taken place. But in light of the history of what we've seen, uh, sometimes I wonder why the birth of Jesus gets so sentimentalized, right? And, and I would just call it this, cultural Christianity puts the focus on Jesus' helplessness as a baby. So instead of, instead of the focus being on the authoritative witness about God and his atoning work, because Jesus was a baby, somehow the, the focus shifts to, well, Christmas is about children. Children. And, and it is with a childlike faith, to be sure, that we come to Christ. Yes, Jesus was a baby. Yes, he was. But this baby saves his people. And he, to save his people, he had to grow up and live his life under the law of God. That's Galatians 4.4. He had to do that. He did that for us. So when Jesus called disciples to himself, he called them to himself to teach them. He called them to himself to establish them as witnesses. He told them the truth about himself and what that would mean for them if they believed it. He told them what that would mean for everyone, everyone who would look to him in faith through their witness. Jesus said this, John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus declaring truth and that knowing it would have this powerful effect of giving them absolute freedom. And of course, what those disciples came to know and understand is that Jesus would accomplish their freedom ultimately through his own death at the cross. And these, as these disciples then proclaimed what they learned and what they believed about Jesus, that news, that information, that truth was good news, that gospel. When that news was believed, that would be the very truth that would mark people as free from the eternal consequences of sin. You can see how vitally important truth is. Jesus is on a mission of truth about himself. And I, I understand, you know, I expect most of you are believers in the room. But faith, just to remind you, is, is knowing and believing that truth about Jesus that sets you free, who he is. And that truth is the gospel. And understand this, it's news unlike any other news because it's news with power. It's news with power. The gospel has the power to transform the believer. The gospel has the power to, first of all, transfer the believer from the domain of darkness, being gripped by the power of the evil one, and move them to the kingdom of Jesus. But as I said, it also has power to transform, to count you 
Yes, as a righteous person in God's sight, but power now for your life in the present. And don't overlook that, brothers and sisters. The good news of Jesus has power for you now. See, when you hear and believe the words of the word who became flesh, you are progressively made and remade into his very moral image. So if you're asking the question this morning, how can I become like Christ? I know sometimes Christians fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I just go back to the Ten Commandments, yet we need to know what the law of God is. Don't underestimate that. But the power to obey the law of God isn't accomplished by willpower, right? It's like, okay, just try harder. I'll love God, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'll just, I'll just think about it not to covet. I'll think about not to have hateful thoughts. Listen, if you've, if you've ever tried to do that, the very thing you think about trying not to do is the thing you end up doing, isn't it? Now, the very power of the gospel, when we focus on the words of the word who became flesh, the good news about him, that has transformative power in your life. That's why we come together like this, brothers and sisters, to hear about Christ. Because leaving this room today, you will have heard the word, you will have heard the gospel, and it will do that work in you by the Holy Spirit of making you more like Jesus when you believe it. That is to be sanctified, to be made holy. This is what Jesus said about this. He understood the power of the truth of his words, the truth of the word of God. He, he even prayed this to the Father, fully expecting what would happen in our lives. He said to the Father, sanctify them. He's speaking of his disciples, but all those who would believe in him, Jesus, through the witness of the disciples, he said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is perfect truth. And he accomplished that mission by setting people free by his truth. The truth is words about the word of God. These words are the good news. That's the gospel which alone has the power to save all who believe. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. When your heart and mind are captured by this truth, it truly makes you free. It truly makes you a disciple of Jesus. And so what are the implications? Well, I hope, I hope you do this. I hope you know this. The implications of the fact that this truth sets us free, this gospel. What do we do? Well, we should live our lives to immerse ourselves in the gospel. And, and I, I hope for you, brothers and sisters, that what it does, the truth of the gospel, it, it makes every other desire or pursuit in this life as secondary, as not as important. And there are important things you do in your life, but nothing, nothing is as important as the very gospel, that you would hear it and take it to heart. And so to do that, we, we gather like this to be reminded of the gospel. We try to find ways to tell it beyond these walls. We sing about it. We pray it. And we strive never, ever to water it down or compromise it. Because it is objective truth, the truth of Jesus, that sets you free and saves you. Second, 
Jesus was a, Jesus' mission was a mission of grace, a mission of grace. Now, I was, I was just thinking about how we order our lives. And I think even if we don't articulate it, I'd really hazard this guess that, that most of us often think about what we deserve. Okay, we might not say it out loud, but I, I think this is how we think about life. If your kids are misbehaving, you might be thinking at the moment, you know, I deserve respect. Or, or you might think if you've worked at a job for a long time and you haven't got a raise, you might be thinking, I, I think I deserve a raise. If you're taking a college course and you've completed everything that's required of you and you've done reasonably well, you deserve the credit. Now, these aren't outlandish statements I'm making. I, I'm just simply saying we think a lot about deserving. And we even have companies marketing to us, telling us that we deserve things, right? You deserve a break today. So get that Big Mac and paint that cholesterol on your arteries. You deserve a break. Might die young, but whatever. Um, you know, if you want to change the color of your hair, you deserve it. You're worth it, right? And, and, you know, why should there be new, a new Lexus in your driveway with that big red bow on Christmas morning, right? Why? Because you deserve it. Well, at least if you're not on the naughty list, then you deserve it, right? But you get that. We're told all the time what we deserve, and we're often thinking about what we deserve. I do this all the time. I got to that spot first at the mall. I, I deserve that parking spot. Don't you run in there. Now, we think we've deserved something either because of position or having earned it. And I think these ideas have been so invaded our thinking that sometimes we forget what true grace is. In, in fact, well, maybe you won't admit to this. Have you ever given a gift simply to reciprocate? Oh, you know, the Joneses, they got us that Christmas cake. Let's give them... Give it back to them. <laughs> They're all alike, aren't they? Or have you ever told your young child that their birthday gift was contingent on behavior? Well, maybe you've never done that. But I've, I've, I've heard the conversation in the mall when children are misbehaving or in the grocery store. You know, your birthday's coming if you keep behaving this way, Right? Well, the word became flesh to, to complete his mission of grace, Jesus. Now, our Bible, our Bible verse tells us that Jesus was full of, that is to say, perfect in grace. That, that word grace, in the original, the word is charis. And, and that root, the root is part of the New Testament word charisma, which is gift. So it's all kind of wrapped up in there. Now, the way the word grace is, is mostly used in the New Testament is, as it how, is, is to describe how God interacts with his people. Grace is the way that God interacts with his people. It's the, uh, it's the merciful, loving kindness that God shows his people for their eternal good. It's very much like the word chesed in the, the Old Testament where you see loving kindness. It's God's love shown solely based on his promise to love 
Not, not on the worthiness in any respect of his people. So grace is something that God does for the object of his grace without considering the worthiness of the object. It's entirely one-sided. God gives because God is gracious. That is grace. Now, why is grace so important to Jesus' mission? Now, we got to get back to what we deserve here. See, the Bible tells us that before God, when we're standing before God, the thing that we deserve, what we earned, is death. Well, actually, that only applies to sinners. So, if you're not a sinner, you can excuse yourself from this. Well, that's right. That's covering all of us, isn't it? No one is righteous, the Bible says, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. And, and I know that, that that idea flies in the face of the illusion that many people are under. I'm really not that bad. I'm not as bad as, you know, pick some evil, murderous, genocidal dictator. I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. But the Bible says we're condemned. And maybe you're not as bad as so-and-so, but we have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. So we're condemned. So what, what now? What can people do to make it right? There's something, uh, there must be something I can do. What does God want me to do so that I'm not condemned? And really that's the age-old question, isn't it? It is the question that's on everybody's mind. It's, it's the thing that undergirds every religion. It, it teaches some path to, to eternal life, some way not to be condemned. I looked this up again just to refresh my memory. In Buddhism, they have an eightfold path to enlightenment. You got to have the right view, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right meditation. Do what's right. In Islam, Obedience to Allah and, and heartfelt repentance for sin. That's their way. But the power is that there's no power for, or the problem I should say, that there's no power for obedience and there's no real justice for God. And if you think about it deeply in Islamic theology, God is the one who must submit himself to human sincerity. Oh, he feels really bad. I guess he's okay. Hinduism, the way, the way of knowledge, the way of works, or the way of devotion, entirely based on human effort. And really, in Hinduism, how do you know if you've had enough knowledge or, or good enough works or deep enough devotion? And, and really, who decides? Apparently, there are 330 million gods to choose from. And so what if they disagree? What if you've got one dissenting vote? You've got problems. Mormonism, heretical corruption of Christianity, they assert that salvation is through belief in God and Jesus. Their concept of God is unbiblical. We can't set that aside, but it is. So they talk about repenting, good, doing good, developing moral character, baptism, and mission, all as essentials. And it all boils down to this, this faith in a false idea of God, plus you've got to really work hard, do your best. Jehovah's Witness. Jesus is a created being, so they're wrong there. But they say faith in this lesser God and really good works. See, see the, words, the world's false faiths have this thing in common. It's all about deserving. And in the human assessment, somehow I think I can do enough 
to please God. Or else it's just a, an unknown mystery. I hope, I hope there'll be enough. But think about this. If, you, if, you've, uh, if you've achieved eternal life because you've earned it, think about that. Right? That isn't grace. See, if our paltry human efforts can impress God, or if those efforts can impress someone's version of God, if our paltry human efforts can impress the deity, is that deity even worth our worship? If God must save based on what man can accomplish, doesn't that subject God to man in some way? There were some people who, uh, when Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000, they came to him after. And they, they asked Jesus a question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And you can see what's wrapped up in the question. What can I do to earn God's favor? And I think this is essentially, this is my take, I think this is essentially the, the American civil religion. What will make me acceptable to God? What kind of work can I do? And these were Jews who were asking the question. And they had been taught from a young age that Abraham was counted righteous when he believed. And Jesus' response to them wasn't anything new. wasn't fresh. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You want to know what to do? This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. John 6, 28. Believing the written word of God and believing the word of God who is flesh. That's not a work. Rather, what it is is a state of being uh, that is initiated in us by God himself. It's a state that has been initiated by God himself in us, believing. Yes, I see that to be true. Faith is nothing however, without the correct object. So we, we ought not to think that faith is something by itself. We just have faith. Faith needs an object, and that object is the one whom God has sent. And so grace is, is God giving, God giving his son to suffer the consequence of our sin. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. We can't pay for it, right? And what God does in sending his son, he satisfies his own demand for justice. God needs full payment for sin. We can't pay. The only way we can pay for sin is by being put into hell. And so in God's mercy and grace, he sends to us a perfect substitute. Jesus laid down his own life, willingly laid it down. He was not cajoled or pressured into it by the father. Jesus said, I will pay thus fulfilling his mission of grace. Peter tells us in his first letter, Christ suffered once for sins. And here's the exchange. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So what do you have to do to receive this grace of life? What do you have to do? Well, I've already made the point. There's, there's nothing to be paid. There's no work to accomplish. There is no penance 
to perform, no secret experience to have, no special family to be born into. No, simply believe, trust. And when you do, it puts on display the full grace of God. The undeserving being given life because the one who is deserving of all praise and glory took your filthy sin and my filthy sin upon his own body on a cross and died so that the wrath of God for that sin could be fully satisfied. So if you confess, as Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, made righteous. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He's not saying we're saved because we say. But the saving work of God in our lives overflows to an expression of acknowledging who Jesus is before people. He is the son of God. He died in my place. And he rose again on the third day. Believe and you'll be saved. Simple truth. Jesus was on a mission of truth and grace. Mission accomplished. And he's given us a mission of making disciples. And likewise, it's a mission of truth and grace. There are facts about Jesus that we must tell, and we can't compromise those facts, right? So as we think about what we are as a church, we say our mission is leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We can only lead them there by declaring to them the truth of the gospel. And when we tell people, and when we tell one another that believing that, simply trusting in what Christ has accomplished, makes you righteous, you're putting on display the very grace of God. Now we have a default position in us as a result of the fall that somehow we can work our way back to God. Somehow we can do enough to put on the list. Somehow we can, we can just get in the right frame of mind or do something of ourselves to, to please God where he'll, he'll go down the checklist and yep, 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 good enough. And so many people are caught in that trap. People that we know, some people that have been even raised in the church People have a little bit of religion in them. Brothers and sisters, our message is the message that's been told to us of who Jesus is and what he came to do and the very fact that simply trusting in him gives you eternal life. So we're going to hold on to that message. We're going to proclaim that truth. We comfort ourselves with that truth. And when we're tempted by the evil one to think, I don't, I, I just fell there. I, I sinned against the Lord. When we're tempted to think, I got to work my way back. Remember the gospel. Remember what Christ has done in your place. And that's not an excuse or permission to go ahead and sin, sin wanting, you know, without any limits. That's not the point here. But stumble you will. Fail you will. 
And the only way back is to confess your sin. That's the truth about yourself, right? And trust the truth that's been declared to you that Jesus paid it all at the cross. So keep coming back to the gospel. Jesus was on a mission of truth and grace. And we likewise, having believed, are on a mission of truth, the gospel, proclaiming the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's what the baby in the manger is. That's what we celebrate this Advent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for sending your son. And the truth of who he is, Father, we can't ignore that. All that your word reveals about him and all that he reveals about you being the exact imprint of your nature. Father, thank you. Thank you for that very vivid picture of your character embodied. Thank you as well for, for your mercy on us and the grace that you poured out on us to, to make us, to alive, enliven us to the truth of who your son is so that we would indeed put our faith in him. So thank you for eternal life that, that we have not earned, we have not deserved, but you have given out of the abundance of your grace to us. We thank you for the eternal love that you show to us. God, strengthen us by your power to live every day, every moment in light of that gospel truth. All glory, we pray, goes to Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.